Hello and welcome. I'm Sam Harris, and it is my true honor and pleasure to host you here on the Growth Mindset Podcast. I talk to amazing individuals about how they achieve their dreams and break down the strategies it takes to lead explosive tech businesses to being paid to travel the world. I deep dive into topics such as Bitcoin and fintech or just how to get stuff done with the goal of increasing our own collective wisdom and making us all happier, healthier and wealthier. Who doesn't want that? Hey players, welcome back to the show. Or if this is your first time, get ready to learn lots and hear some fascinating stories. Because my guest today is Eamon Carey. He's an Irish entrepreneur who has run or helped out with various accelerators, most recently Techstars and Xeroth AI. He's also started several of his own businesses and is now launching his own VC fund. As well as finding time to work with all the different businesses he is involved in, he still manages to chill out and enjoy life and family, which is always a sign that someone knows what they're doing, I think. So he gave me a lot of really good advice when I was starting my own business under Xeroth AI. And I just found it a really good opportunity to talk to him in detail about his experiences and really enjoyed the podcast with him. So without further ado, I'll let him introduce himself. So my name is Eamon Carey. I guess in the context of today's interview, I'm a venture partner at, at Xeroth, which is an early stage accelerator for AI and machine learning companies in, in Asia. I'm an angel investor, managing director at uh, Techstars, which is one of the world's largest uh, accelerators and an occasional occasional entrepreneur. Um, originally from Dublin, but now living in London and, uh, and on airplanes uh, a lot of the time, unfortunately. Okay, so first question. How did you first get involved in VC and accelerators? I had a couple of companies of, of my own, I guess two of which worked out and, and a couple which which didn't. And so I always remembered like the people who helped me out when I was starting my business, the kind of folks that would sit down and say, you're crazy for structuring a contract like this, or, oh, that's not how you send a sales pitch or, you know, whatever the advice was. Because most people were super unhelpful. I always remember those people who, who went out of their way to be nice. And I always kind of said to myself, look, if I'm ever lucky enough to be successful that at a point where someone else comes to me looking for advice that I would always give that freely if I could. And so I started doing some kind of angel investing and kind of working with early stage companies about 2000, 2011. We'd had a, a games company that had been kind of reasonably successful and, and the guys from um, from GameStop had acquired it. And so we're kind of working with companies who were looking for funding or companies who were looking to come into new markets or kind of understand how they could develop and helping them out. And through that started making, you know, some small angel investments and then met a guy called John Bradford who was bringing tech stars to Europe at the time setting up tech stars London and they had a you know that whole ethos was kind of helping people mentoring people you know it's a mentor driven accelerator program and I thought this is perfect like I'd love to get involved and so I started working with them mentoring and, and helping out and then it just kind of scaled from there like I loved it I loved being involved mentored on all their London programs went over and mentored in Berlin when they launched there and Tel Aviv when they launched there and became an entrepreneur in residence on a fintech program that they had and you know it was kind of continuing to to do investments at that stage and then you know, Techstars asked me to, to run a program in, in New York eventually and, um, and got the opportunity to go over there and, and invest with them. So it was kind of, I suppose, accidental in some respects. You know, I never kind of, if you'd asked me 20 years ago, what, I, what was I going to do with my life or 10 years ago? Like there's at no point what I've ever said I want to invest in companies. You know, I think running a startup is probably a terrible metaphor. It was a bit like taking drugs, like you kind of get addicted 
connected to it. What I've realized about investing, particularly at an early stage, is actually it's kind of like helping run, you know, I've got 24 or 25 companies in my portfolio. So you're kind of helping all of them. And all of those people are much smarter than me. So they have much better ideas than I ever had. So it makes my um, it makes me look good and it makes my life a little bit easier to, to help them with their ideas. And it's yeah. just, look, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. And to be fair, one thing I found was it's really nice helping lots of different people and just being able to go into a, a session and have different ideas of how to solve their problems and then be able to walk away and let them deal with the problem and you can just go somewhere else and have some more ideas for someone else don't tell it like that's the dirty secret right you get to all of the benefits of yeah, kind of yeah. <laughs> running a company without like waking up at three o'clock in the morning looking yeah. at the ceiling going oh balls how am i going to do this yeah, you know payroll yeah, yeah. so it's you know it, it it does have um there are a lot of fringe benefits to doing it particularly at early stage where you know you know that, that accelerator process is really interesting for me because you you can tease out ideas and you can help companies through pivots and you know stuff that you talk about on a Tuesday might be in their product on a Wednesday or yeah. Thursday. Whereas, you know, when you're working with companies that are series B or C or, or, or further along, you know, you might have this brilliant strategic direction that they can go in, but you know, it's much harder to, to move the needle for those folks. So that kind of early stage first two years of a company's life, three years, maybe I think is where I'm happiest now and, and happiest investing and working. So you feel there's a different skill set required for bigger companies then? Like once a company gets to tens of millions of dollars in funding or has like 50 or 80 or 100 staff, you know, they become very different beasts at that point. And it's not that it becomes less fun, you know, it's, it's a very different set of, of challenges, but it's just not one that I'm probably as good at. You know, if I look at most VCs, like, pattern recognition right and uh you know having worked with hundreds of, of early stage companies through tech stars and other accelerators around the world i can spot those patterns yeah. i've worked with far fewer public companies so if i was sitting on the board of a public company or you know trying to advise the ceo there be like based on a, a data set of nil i think you should do this which might be the right decision but it would be me going on gut rather than kind of going oh i've seen this happen i've seen this company fuck up their legals this way a hundred times before so i can tell you don't do this yeah, yeah. you know or you know typical stuff like you see the same things like fundamentally almost every company has roughly the same problems like one of a half dozen maybe problems and so you know helping them solve for that is is kind of interesting especially across multiple different verticals and and, and areas and it keeps me like the good thing about working with dozens of companies or maybe even hundreds of companies a year mentoring on different programs is it makes me like it feeds my intellectual curiosity you know i'll be like oh company x is working on using fermentation to change flavor profiles it's like i've always been a fan of the end product of yeah. fermentation you know and, and drinking it never really understood how it worked and when i started working with those guys i was like Shit, i'm gonna like have to read a bunch of stuff like watch some youtube videos so every new company that's doing something that i don't know anything about kind of forces me at least minimum like i have to read one blog post to kind of make myself look smarter and so it um that's really interesting because you know i mean it theoretically makes you a better dinner party guest yeah, and I guess I have so many ideas in different areas. It's so nice to be able to actually be involved and do stuff in different sides of businesses that you'd never really get to with just one lifetime of entrepreneurship. It is. It's, it's incredible. Like, you know, you kind of get to go, you know, I mean, I've, I've invested in everything from like office based AI and food to consumer maps and stuff like this. So it's, you do, yeah, you do get a lot of really interesting emails and have a lot of really interesting conversations. And, you know, you do. And I think that's, you know, for me, you know, one of the things I always ask people when I'm interviewing them or when I'm, you know, especially if I'm hiring for one of my companies or helping one of my companies hire, it's always asking like, what's the last book people read? Or like, yeah. what are the five websites they check every day? This kind of stuff. Because I think interesting, like, interesting people are the best people to work with and the best people to hang out with and best people to have conversations with they typically make really good founders they typically make pretty good vcs whereas if you're kind of monomaniacal like
like all I'm interested in is this one thing, you, know, you can very quickly run out of shit to talk about, basically. Okay. So what's your favorite interview question? Depending on what the role I'm hiring for is, um, yeah, last book you read, I always ask just because I kind of think it's important that people read yeah, really books like rather than, than articles. Okay. Favorite websites, and you'd be amazed at how many people are like, oh, uh, I asked a person in an interview a couple of weeks ago, what's your favorite website? Like, what's the website you check for information? They were like, oh, uh, Google, which is both an amazing answer, but also the worst one I've ever heard. Like, I kind of want people to say, oh, you know, I read the New York Times and Reddit and you know, hacker news and, and these types of things. Yeah, and then if I'm kind of, if it's a, if it's someone I'm going to have to hang out with more regularly, then what's the last TV show they watched, the last movie they saw, the last album they listened to. But yeah, that's my that's my de facto interview. I'm like, I'm the world's shittiest interviewer. Like, I never ask any hard questions. I always ask just really stupid questions, but that there is kind of like a thread of uh, logic sitting behind, hopefully. So you must have seen so many applications. What is it you look for in use to help you filter all the applications to decide who's going to get onto one of your accelerators uh, the team is is honestly always the the biggest thing and i think every like every investor i've ever seen invested says roughly the same thing like the the team is is kind of like the fundamental thing that you look at like what you know what are the backgrounds of the people in the company why are they building that company what if it's someone trying to build a you know a legal tech company and they've spent their entire lives working as a film producer it's probably not going to work right so are they scratching a niche that they felt themselves do they have some degree of kind of domain expertise or are they just really interested in this and really passionate about it you look for like team cohesion and dynamics so you know people who've known each other from university or who've worked together for a couple of years or who have kind of some long-standing relationship because you in theory if you've known someone for a couple of years you like them enough to hang out with them every so often like one of the interesting things relatively recent uh, years that we've seen is you know, a lot of companies applying for programs and coming in and they've literally never sat in the same room as one another like their entire business has been slack and skype yeah. and then they come and sit in a room together and it's like i didn't realize you were a vegan like i i want to eat steak every day or whatever like yeah. there's all of these weird personality clashes mm -hmm. that you uh, that you go through and you know going through whether it's an accelerator program or taking money from a vc is actually a really stressful thing to do yeah. so you want to make sure those teams can stay together and you want to work with good people, right? Because roughly 20 or 30% of, of companies that go through, particularly through accelerator programs, will change the business. So the company that, you know, the business that they apply with and the business that they exit with will, in some cases, be a tiny bit different or an order of magnitude different. And so you want to make sure you back people where it's like, I don't know if this is the idea that's going to be mega successful for you, but I know you're going to be mega successful and I want to be along for the ride. You know, as long as you don't suddenly decide to do like Airbnb for cats, right? Along yeah. the way, then I'll, I suppose I'd probably have to beat you to death we say in a company with a ceo a cto and a coo if you were to lose your cto would they need to hire a cto straight away or get a new person on board no i don't think so i mean i think you know ultimately and it's always funny like i, I always wonder about like job titles in startups yeah, yeah you know like there's there's um like everyone kind of does you know until you get to probably about 10 people everyone kind of does everything like everyone yeah, is the yeah. coo and everyone is the ceo and everyone is you know and, and all of you guys are, are technical as well so in theory, like in some companies it's like okay the ceo is like the the vision person who can't yeah. do any coding or do anything else most of the ctos of bigger and rapidly scaling companies i know don't like they haven't opened sublime text in a long time or yeah. whatever you know program they use because most of what they're doing like once you at a company once you raise series a funding anyone who's got the title c in their job is mostly hiring people probably about 50 percent of your time is spent hiring people another 50 percent of your time is probably spent like in a meeting talking about who you're going to hire or in a meeting yeah. telling them what to do after you've hired them so actually 
it's funny, like having now worked with lots of companies, I mean, and everyone has that ego thing at the start. It's like, oh, I'm the CEO and you get, you know, you get your business card and it's like, oh, I'm the CEO and you hand it out. I'd hate to be a CEO now. It's like, it's so, you get to do so few things that actually impact your business a lot of the time. Like you spend so much time in meetings about meetings and stuff like this. Like you've got to be, you gotta be very careful that you're able to separate yourself out from that. And, and uh, you know, I mean, I was always really rubbish at like uh, letting go of things when I was running my companies. It was like, you know, learning to trust people is a very difficult thing to do. So any C-level title is uh, is tricky for a bunch of reasons. Also, the biggest thing that you'll find is um, like once you build something that loads of people are using, all of that shit goes out. They're just like queuing up to give you money. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't worry about it too much. That's really funny because we're already starting to see some of that come true on the course. So <laughs> can definitely testify that you are 100% correct there. Yeah, and it happens, right? I mean, look, this is, you know, but it is all of these little things, you know, that that any program will will bring out. Like, I remember going traveling when I was in college, going traveling with a bloke, and uh, we basically got off the plane, and he was like, I want to go home. Because he, we went away to, um, we went to Israel, and we got off the plane, and I think he basically assumed that Israel will be basically Ireland, but about five degrees warmer, and nothing else will be different. And then you get there, it's like, actually, lots of things are different. Like, the buildings are different, the smells are different, the food is different. Everything was like, oh, shit, I can't do this. You know, some yeah. people are just wired differently, I think. And uh, it's uh, putting yourself in a high-stress situation is a, is a tricky thing to do. Like, I mean, voluntarily doing it is almost probably a sign of insanity, but then probably starting a company is a sign of insanity as well. Yeah, especially after you've already started a few. And it never leaves you. Like, I mean, even still, you know, and you mentioned it earlier, like every so often I'll sit there going, you know what would be amazing is if someone did X for Y and you kind of sit there going, maybe I should do it. You know, maybe I should you kind of sketch out the idea. Like I've yeah. notebooks of ideas and pages on Evernote of like, oh, what about the, you know, app that does this or a, you know, gestural recognition system for the future of computing or whatever else. Yeah, it's an itch that you can never quite scratch. Do you think there's an advantage in young people starting companies that have a certain naivety? Oh, yeah. If you could kind of, uh, you know, like Matrix style plug, yeah. plug, you know, some information yeah, exactly. in and understand what we like two years would feel like, no one would do it. Like literally no one would ever start a company because it is, you do go through, like, I can't remember who said it, but they were like, you know, there are two states for a, an entrepreneur to be in. It's like either total euphoria, like everything is incredible. Like we ship this feature on time or, oh, we got a hundred yeah. users or we got a, or it's like everything is shit. Like this yeah. is the end of the world. We're going to run out of money and I'm going to have to let all these people go. Or like, there's no Christmas this year, basically. And there's no in between point. Like even if you're Mark Zuckerberg, you probably, you know, the, and I, I honestly believe that like you do vacillate between those two points pretty regularly. So I think, I think one of the reasons people start companies is like there is an intellectual challenge. They feel an itch that they want to scratch. Yeah. They want to be their own boss you know like working for other people if you've got really good managers and really good bosses then working for other people is incredible and i was lucky enough to work under you know one or two folks who were who were amazing managers I was also unlucky enough to work under a couple of people who were terrible managers and so for a lot of people if you're working for someone who's a really terrible person what's more alluring it's like oh well maybe i could go and start my own whatever shack selling crab cakes on the beach you know and even if i only make minimum wage it's gonna be a lot better than dealing with this twat you know eight hours a day because that's the thing you you know <laughs> As far as I can tell, you know, we have a finite amount of time on this planet and, and wasting, you know, a good third of it working with people who are dickheads is, yes. is not, not great. Like, you know, right. you know, because at some point your hair is going to start falling out and yeah. you're not going to be able to walk around as much and like you'll forget shit. It's like make as many amazing memories as you can while you can. 
I think if you don't do that, that's the kind of, you know, when you're on your deathbed regretting, like no one's going to go, oh, I wish I'd put in like an extra hours overtime, whatever, doing this. It's like when you're doing your own company, in a lot of cases, it is that cliche of it's not like work. If you're doing something that you're genuinely passionate about, then you don't mind waking up at five o'clock in the morning to do a call or you don't mind working at 10 or 12 or 16 hour a day or skipping weekends for a while, you know? Not that I think, I mean, I'm not an advocate of people doing that on an ongoing basis or at all if they can get away with it. But when you're really passionate about stuff, I mean, I like working with startups so much that I packed up and came to Hong Kong for two weeks, you know? I mean, I could be, I don't know, reading a book or like, you know, I don't know, whatever whatever I will be doing in, in London, probably sitting on a tube or something. But, uh, you know, like when you're passionate about things, you just, you will kind of walk through walls to do them. Wow. Uh, thank you for a very inspiring speech just then. This is the launch of my political campaign. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's pretty much a perfect embodiment of the growth mindset, which is, of course, what we're all about here on the podcast. We'd be really interested to hear what you think about CEOs that have a distorted reality field and if that's an essential quality for someone to be a great CEO or not. If they want to lead a really like huge massively changing business yeah i mean i think you have to see the world in a very specific way and it's it can't be a way that thinks about constraints or almost a way that thinks about details mm. like it's got to be i have this singular vision basically this kind of ability that that steve jobs had where he would sit there and they'd be like we can't ship the iphone in three months we need to have this type of you know whatever screen available for it and he'd be like great, so we're going to ship it in three months and you're just going to fix the problem and that's fine. Yeah. And he would just create this kind of environment around him where he's like, I understand that you're concerned about this, but here's, here's what's happening and that's it. And so I think you do have to have, you know, when you're tackling big problems like that, you do have to have a very singular, a singular vision. And, you know, what you, what you learn over time, like the, the great CEOs are ones that have that vision but are also willing to kind of accept input from people around them. And so... You know, every CEO of every company should be the guardian of the the vision that they have or that the the company is 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 striving towards, of course. But they should also be the type of person that can kind of get into the weeds and be pragmatic. But what about getting timelines that are slightly realistic so people can actually work with them rather than stuff that's completely out of range of anything normal? It's like working with developers, right? I remember working with people before. Be like, how long before this feature is ready? They'd be like, it's one week. And then you would go back one week later. Be like, how long before this feature is the feature ready? I'd be like, no, it's a week. Yeah. And you go back a week later, and it's like two weeks. Yeah, yeah. like <laughs> every you know, no. software development kind of is uh, elastic. I would yeah, say yeah. this to say the least. And so I think it's like yes, have the vision, but you need to have the flexibility to kind of go. Okay, well, to get to point X, three months or, or two years or whatever in the in the distance, then all of these ducks have to be in a row to start with. And like, I'm a really big fan with companies of like kind of going, okay, so here's the end point, right? Here's your desired goal that you want to get to. And that might be, we want to launch a product and get like a thousand upvotes on Product Hunt and get 50,000 downloads. And you go, okay, that's great. Like, let's set those, you know, two or three tasks out or two or three kind of KPIs, wherever you want to go. And then map backwards and go, okay, well, what are all of the things that have to go right? Like, first of all, you've got to build the product, right? Then you've got to kind of test it and then you've got to rebuild it because actually it turns out mostly what you build the first time around is shit or people don't want it or don't know how to use it or don't understand documentation or there's something confusing or, you know, all of these kind of different things. You've got to kind of, all of these little dependencies are a pain in the hole. But if you kind of take that step-by-step -step approach and kind of reverse back from where you want to end up, like it's not much gap for C like CEOs have to learn how to do the job in running as well. Like it's a very difficult thing to do to kind of you know because i think in a lot of cases people start companies with a vision the fact that they're not at point you know the end point straight away 
is actually super frustrating. Yeah. And so, you know, the more people that you can kind of, the more meetings that you have similar to the one that we had today, or the more kind of people that you meet that kind of give a bit of perspective, the more I think that, that CEOs, like great CEOs, learn from that and go, okay, in order to get to the perfect version of the vision that I have, we need to do things properly. And yes, it might be frustrating. And yes, I might kind of need to join a boxing club and hit a bag every so often to get my anger out. But in order to get there, you know, and, and I mean, I run into this with portfolio companies all the time. Like it's, it's probably even worse to have an investor who has a vision for your company because I'm kind of sitting there going, you should yeah. be, you should be aiming for here. And you know, the CEO is kind of going, yeah, but the, you're the one that's also telling us to get there. We have to do these five things first. It's yeah. like, oh, so sometimes my own logic is used against me, but um, you know, it, it, it happens. Huh. Yeah. You can't have it every way. Okay. So this point, it'd be interesting to, um, backtrack a little and i'd really like to know more about how you actually launch a vc fund because it just seems like a bonkers thing to just suddenly do and have no idea how you would do it like what do you need to start a healthy dash of arrogance a lot of cash no uh, i think i mean the absolute way to i mean the best way to launch a vc fund is to like make money and start angel investing like the, the best vcs in my opinion anyway are people who've had operational roles in companies, not necessarily founders, you know, although founders helps, but have had an operational role in in one or, or more startups or, you know, even to an extent in, in, in bigger, more established companies. They are people who came out and made some money and then start deploying some of that money into their own angel investments. So they do kind of five grand or 10 grand or 25 grand or whatever investments. And they build up a little bit of a track record. They start getting access to really good deals. And what typically then starts happening is more people will come to them and say, you seem really smart. Can I give you some of my money to invest as well? Because I don't want to start from the ground up. That's how the best guys start. And, and you know, you can see funds building up around people in that way. Or there's like, I've done an MBA and I know a lot of rich people. And so you know, and VC seems fun. I get to fly around and go to conferences and like lots of people think I'm important. And so you get a lot of rich people, whether they be, you know, family offices or, you know, just high net worth individuals, or you go to pension funds, endowments and stuff like this. And you say the potential is that VC will deliver a better return than sticking your money in a bank. And so you should give it to me. This is, you know, how you diversify your, your portfolio of, uh, of investments. And I've put together this team of experienced entrepreneur, experienced investor, guy who understands legal shit, guy who understands financial shit, and we're going to go ahead and roll out. Uh, because it's it's actually quite a, like, it's kind of a complicated process to establish a VC fund. There's a lot of, like, headaches to go along with it. But fundamentally, you've got to have, like, someone who understands how to invest in companies, and then hopefully someone who understands how to help, and, and sometimes it's the same person, but someone who understands how to help those companies succeed once you've invested in them. Because what you don't want, like, what no entrepreneur should ever want is passive capital or just dumb money. Yeah. So, you know, one of the advantages of, of Xeroth or, you know, any accelerator program or all of the really smart VCs is you hopefully get access to like a Rolodex of contacts or a wealth of experience or just lots of patterns that people can, can recognize. And so getting those, the right people around the table, the right type of money coming in, you know, whether if you can get great limited partners in a fund, you know, great investors in a VC fund can, you know, help smooth the way for companies in, in tons of different ways. So it's, yeah, you need that right mix of money, kind of business acumen and kind of understanding how investment works from the other side of the table. 
because it's you know it's relatively straightforward to think about how investment works for a startup when you're a vc your investment like your returns profile like all of these different things have to be yeah, have to be factored in it's it's not massively complicated but it's and you've got to manage expectations right because i think the other thing is uh if you do like a, an ico and you, you raise a fund that way the expectation probably like if you're not engaging with say accredited investors or people who are quote unquote more sophisticated investors everyone's assumption is if i invest in a vc fund they're just going to find the next facebook and i'm going to be a billionaire right and the reality is actually probably less than half of vc funds return anything at all really or at least anything of value like in a lot of cases you'd be literally better putting your money in a bank and getting whatever the 0.0001 percent interest at lloyd's or whoever else gives you you know most the vast majority of vc returns are driven by investing for vc funds hopefully (laughs) yeah like i I mean or or invest in a really good vc fund (laughs) like invest in like andreessen horowitz or excel or you know union square or you know one of the the recognized folks or do take the tech stars and 500 startups and xeroth and and, and yc approach which is if you invest in a thousand companies you know there's a better than average better than average chance that that you know one of them will more than return the fund like there's a there's a theory that says you have to invest in 100 companies to have a chance of of making making money which by that logic i've got a long way to go but i guess i'll eventually get there so i would spread like i think early stage investing like super early stage seeds kind of accelerator stage investing is almost like its own asset class at this point and so you can do a lot of really interesting things investing in companies at that stage vc typically plays the investment is de-risked a little bit because companies raising Series A have typically hit some magic number of users or revenue or whatever else. So it's less risky putting the money in. But accelerator stuff, you can put a roughly the same amount of money in and get 10x the number of companies out. And so you just have to figure out... like The, the thing that very few accelerators or VCs have figured out yet is, is kind of portfolio optimization. So, you know, and we talked about it, I think, the other day. It's like, if you have 10 companies or 13 companies going through a batch, right, half of them are probably not going to work out. And it's been able to identify the great people from the companies that aren't working and yeah. say, okay, look, rather than run it into the ground, why don't you come over here, plug into this, you're an amazing salesperson, you go yeah. and do that and let the team do this. Or you're an amazing data scientist, like you come in here and augment the team in this way. So that's the interesting part that I'm looking forward to kind of hopefully helping TAC and, and, and other folks with. Okay, so we kind of mentioned how you filter teams, but I'd really like to know some of the signs you look for to tell if a team will work together well. Yeah, so I think you look for, I mean, it's like, um, it's not in, in fact anything like this. You're looking for like micro gestures and little signs that the team isn't functional or functioning. So if I ask a technical question, does the CTO answer it? If I ask a technical question and the CTO answers it, does the CEO jump in over them and go, I think what person X is trying to say is this. If you ask a business related question, CTO answers it. Are the other two people rolling their eyes or looking at one another or... Are they looking at the ground when he's talking? Like all of those little gestures are things that you've got to look out for because I think you've got to understand what the team dynamic is. And if it's apparent, and you can tell, like, I mean, honestly, you can tell really quickly, these two people hate this person. That's going to be tricky. Or this person is a is an asshole, like egomaniac, like talking over everyone. That's going to be tricky. And yeah, you know what? Like by that logic, we some investors would have missed out on like yeah. Uber, for example. There are a whole range of factors that you take in. Like, so going through the you know like a a accelerator application process obviously read the application before you chat to the team and you hopefully have two or three conversations with with two or three people but those are the little things that you look out for it's like body language behavior like how people talk to one another do they laugh on the call 
right? Do they, is there an in-joke that they tell and everyone is kind of in on it and I'm sitting there going, okay, I don't understand, but it's great that you have that chemistry. You know, that type of stuff is really important because you've got a like problem with accelerator interviews in particular is like, I literally have 10 minutes in most cases, you know, and if I'm really lucky, I might speak to you over a couple of interviews or if I'm like really interested in the company, but on the fence, yeah. I might get in a plane and go and meet you because I want to see what that dynamic is like in real life. And I want to get really maybe a bit more under the skin of the of the business. But in a lot of cases, literally, I have 10 minutes in which to say these people seem all right or these yeah. people seem crazy. And you do have these weird things where you're going to go, look, do you, does this seem like someone I'd like to go and have a beer with? Because in this environment, it's actually like spending 13 weeks cheek by jowl with people. If you don't like, you know, I mean, I think anyone who's an MD or an investor of any description will tell you the same cliche thing of like, no parent has any ugly children, you know. And so you, you don't want to be in a uh, in an environment where you're kind of like this person like i deliberately don't want to spend time with this person because they're not nice you kind of want to you want to try and optimize for working with good people don't work with dickheads is the kind of key message i think okay yeah that's a really good advice so i'd like to know what's the most unusual pivot you've ever had on a tech stars program or any other accelerator of course we had a company that came in doing they built a social network for moms like ex, people who were expecting babies or had recently had babies yeah. uh, and it was five guys who <laughs> built this up it was like mm, are you sure this is what you want to watch no they all and i think in all cases had wives who had kids and so they had that kind of understanding but they ended up pivoting into being a kind of a messaging layer api for for applications so that was a bit of a bit of a leap i'm trying to think who else oh there were there have been, I mean, we see pivots on, on a bunch of programs. No, the best one I can't tell you about, unfortunately. I think that, that's, that's it. Sure, you can tell me and then, like, find out if it's all right to... Uh, <laughs> you know, just I haven't spoken to the founder in, in, since Demo Day, actually. I think it was a... Um, they went through a very tough process. They had a business that I thought was actually really interesting, but some of the mentors and advisors and other people that they were speaking to didn't get it in the same way or didn't get it at all in, in, in most cases. And they were effectively, not that they didn't volunteer to do it, but I think the feedback they got made them think that this business was not viable. And so they went off trying to kind of figure out what, what else to do. And in the interim, someone else launched a version of their product, a substandard version of what they had been planning. And it became like this sensational success. And, you know, it was a very painful lesson for the founder, or founders. And then, yeah, they ended up pivoting into something that was um, totally unrelated. In fairness, they still did one of the better demo day pitches I've ever seen. The founder was like an amazing pitcher. But yeah, like that was a classic example of you can put 100, like Techstars London has like 150 mentors or something like this. You put 150 smart people in front of a business and they'll give that business really shit advice. And, and that was a, in fairness, it's an edge case. Like usually businesses get good advice in aggregate, but that was one where actually the, the advice wasn't great. And they, they, took the, they took the wrong advice, I guess. Yeah, filtering advice as an entrepreneur can be really hard. Sometimes you just have to go with your gut. Yeah, and I mean, that's like, you know, in probably the vast majority of cases, that's the best way to do it, right? Like listen to and try to synthesize all the advice that you get from people or all the conversations that you have with people. But at some point you do have to go, all right, well, I have to, and this is the thing is that like, you know, a lot of these processes that you go through early stage and accelerator can kind of lead to decision paralysis. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm getting, so getting all of these kind of different opinions and I, all of these different conflicting pieces of advice, like what the fuck do I do? But at some point you do have to go, I'm going to do this. And, and that can be, you sit down and talk about it as a group, or it can just be, no, I have decided we're doing this, Yeah, you know, because somewhere in there, it'll be, have been informed by the conversations that you've had. But um, yeah, at some point you've got to, you got to shit or get off the pot basically. <laughs> yeah. It can get a bit overwhelming when you're getting so much advice from different people to work out 
which is the advice you need to take and which stuff you need to ignore and cut out and just actually do something. Listen, like, you know, we had conversations about it with a couple of the companies over the last few days. And I think I said it in the kind of all hands meeting the other day as well. It's like a lot of the time, and there is a temptation. And I see this all the time with companies. They're building a product and then they meet an investor and the investor goes, oh, I think product should be X or, you know, this will be cool. And then you talk to them afterwards, they're like, we've decided to pivot into this. And it's like, if you build a business to make a VC happy, then you're doing it the wrong way. Like you've got to, you've got to always think about your user. Like, yeah. what is it? Who are you building this for? Why are you building this? What are they going to want? Not some fucker in a sweater vest. Yeah, customers are always king. And it's interesting. I, I find some of my best mentors are the ones that are completely happy with me to just ignore their advice as long as they feel that I listen to the bits that are needed. Yeah. And there are some, t- you know, like I've, I've worked with some mentors who get really into, they're like, oh, you know, sp- spent all this time working with this company and like they haven't followed my advice. And it's like, well, what, what do you expect? Like that people will slavishly do everything, mm. everything you say that's kind of not being a mentor. And that, that is taking that advice on board and figuring out what's useful and what's not is, you know, I always think with mentors as well, it's like sometimes it's worth going back to them and going, actually, we did listen to what you were saying. We did take it on board. We were, you know considering it but actually based on all these other factors we decided to go in a different direction and that's like oh and i'm not saying you have to do that but if a mentor ever does get a bit stroppy then you can kind of you can usually diffuse the situation by doing that so what's the best piece of advice you've ever had from a mentor don't work with dickheads is is basically like don't there have been occasions where i've been tempted to do things whether it's take a job or invest in a company or do Mm. you know different things where it's like am i sacrificing some of my principles to do it the answer would have been yes, or am I am I going to be working with someone who I find somewhat distasteful or unpleasant or whatever else, but maybe there's some fringe benefit or longer-term benefit or whatever else? Like in all of those cases, if the solution is that I have to work with someone who I really don't like, then... And I've talked to, to lots of people about that. Like, you know, that that's across the board. The best advice I've gotten from the best people is like, just don't work with people that you can't deal with. Especially like, if I invest in a company and that company is successful, I will be working with that person for maybe 10 or 20 years. Because if I'm one of the earliest investors in your business, okay, I might not be on your board when you're going to, you know, do a public listing, but I'll probably be invited to your birthday party or we'll at least hang out every quarter. We'll have a chat every so often. So you're building a long-term relationship and I'd much rather build long-term relationships with people who I actually like. And so the people who told me early on like there were a couple of choices that I had, some of which I didn't always make the right decision, obviously. But the kind of aggregate stuff from the smart people I met was don't like be willing to move on certain things. But when it comes to kind of working with people that you find unpleasant or distasteful or lazy or whatever else, there's something about them. You're building a rod for your own back. Cool. OK, so it's talking about so many different things that you're doing. And I just really want to ask you, how the hell do you manage your time and have time to give to all these different people and ideas? Yeah, I mean, I think you um, schedule things in relatively short slots and kind of think about, I mean, I think about life in terms of kind of buckets of of time. So I knew, you know, for example, with Xeroth, it's like, okay, because I'm in Asia, a lot of the calls that like, I can't really do any calls with anyone in America, right? Because it's just, it's too much of a pain in the arse. So I've said to all my US portfolio companies, like I'm really only available on WhatsApp for the next six weeks. And if it's an emergency, yes, we can do a call, but mostly not really around for anyone i'm working with in europe it's like okay well i'm kind of available in the evenings here and so i looked at tax scheduling for here and i knew right we'll do stuff in the mornings we'll do stuff in the evenings like late afternoon i can kind of get away with so i think if you kind of think about your time in that way it's it's actually not that bad and also most like i've 20 24 25 companies in the in the portfolio right in most cases i'll talk to them for 
15 minutes, 20 minutes of Fortnite. Like we don't talk yeah, that often. So I don't, I'm only on a handful of boards. So the companies I invest in, like, and particularly like whether it's Xeroth or Techstars or anywhere else, it's actually probably better for us not to take a board seat because if I did, then I'd have, yeah. if I had 12 board seats, then I'd be fucked, right? Because it, yeah. like your average board seat takes roughly a day a month worth of your time, maybe a day every two months. And then we tell companies don't meet so often, right? Like you don't, yeah. when you're early stage, you really only need to have a board meeting every once a quarter maybe. Yeah. But yeah, mostly like, Typically, I hear from teams if things are going really well or if things are going really badly. And when things are going really badly, then you make time and you find time to have conversations and stuff like this. But by and large, you know, my role is like when the program is on, it's really intensive and you're like working with people and all that kind of stuff. But when the program is not on, you know, most of my role is like finding interesting new companies to invest in, you know, helping my existing companies kind of grow and scale and do do interesting things. Like running a radio show. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, and, and hanging out with investors and partners and trying to fucking get people excited about investing in like giving more money to the companies yeah. that I've that I've helped out. So I think that's and then you've I, I'm always conscious to make time like a generous amount of time for family and life, right? You know, mm-hmm. because again, I'm lucky to have this job, but you know, I'm also very lucky to have my wife and my parents and, you know, all of these other people that I want to spend time with. And you know, so I think you just, like, I have fairly decent scheduling set up now. So, you know, I have boxes of 15 minute slots or 20 minute slots, three days during the week, which are allocated to like meeting with new companies. I have kind of boxes of time allocated to kind of, uh, like people that I've used to work with or people that I've worked with previously who I suppose I kind of mentor as individuals or whatever. So like I have those kind of slots boxed in and then if I need to kind of clear the decks and come to Hong Kong for two weeks, then it, you know, it's relatively easy to do that. Okay. So who are your favorite founders and can you tell me why? So of the ones that I've, that I've worked with, I think Mike Muntel, who's the CEO of, of Lingvis, is probably my, my favorite one right now. I mean, I love them all equally, obviously, but I think um, Mike's a really interesting guy. So he was a PhD nuclear physicist, worked at CERN as part of the Higgs boson team, didn't get his name on the paper and so didn't miss out on the Nobel Prize, but like literally part of a team that, that won the Nobel Prize, which is you know, pretty badass, was living in France and tried every method possible to learn French and it, it didn't work out. And so built a, an adaptive algorithm to teach himself French, which he did in, in 200 hours, and then turned that into a business, uh, in, in, into linguist. And so PhD in nuclear physics working in CERN to running a company is a very unusual path, I would say. And, you know, coming from academia and hardcore research into, you know, running a company, going through Techstars, you know, all that kind of stuff. There's a very, very steep learning curve and there are very, very different worlds and very, very different things that you've got to navigate. And I think Mike did a really good job of doing that initially and has done an incredible job. Like he is a sponge for information, you know, like he's constantly asking questions, always kind of getting recommendations for books or, you know, implement like testing little things that he's read about and seeing if it works with some of the some of his colleagues. Like he really of all of the CEOs that I know, he's the one who is most eager to learn how to be a better like everyone wants to be a better CEO. He is one of the few that I see taking like active measures to be a better one and is developing into a great CEO as a result. Because I think when when the company started, there were probably a few people who thought, oh, well, he should go and work on the science because smart PhD guy go and work on the science like and leave running the company to the, you know, whatever guys with the slick back hair or whatever else, which is a lot of bollocks, right? The best person to run the company, and it comes back to what we were talking about earlier, is like he has a vision for how he wants to run the company. 
he has the ability to learn how to run a company alongside that vision. And that makes him, in, in my mind, one of the best people. I mean, not just one of the best CEOs I've ever, like literally one of the best people I've ever worked with. Wow. So he has like the ultimate growth mindset then. Yeah. And he's he just, you know, I mean, he's he just, he's really like, he likes having a few beers. He's very normal. You know, you have the most interesting conversations when you go out for, for dinner, or for drinks, because he kind of has a wide range of, of interest. So you're just kind of a good person to spend time with. So you think he'd be your top tip for me to interview on the podcast? It depends what you're looking. I mean, so Mike's a really interesting CEO for someone who's scaling and growing at pace now. There's a guy called Augustine Gonzalez, who's a CEO of, of Paranoid Fan, yeah. uh, which I invested in through my through my last batch. They're now, you know, knocking on the door of thirty or forty million users and scaling rapidly, scaling into emerging markets. They're doing a lot of deals in Mexico and Uruguay and, and places like that. So Augie is a uh, phenomenal CEO and, and someone again who's who's following the same path as Mike actually is yeah. like keen to learn how to be a better CEO has a very singular vision of where he wants to get to is ruthlessly efficient yeah. you know one of the things sometimes that great CEOs do is they fire people yeah. and not because that makes them great but because they recognize this is not going to work out early and quickly and yeah. go I'm sorry this has to happen and so you know the, the, all of these things are are, are, are kind of um, are really interesting and I think Augie is, is, is heading down an interesting path so he's uh, he's a great one so yeah I would definitely one of those two would be uh, would be a pretty good interview thanks so much it's great to get some recommendations um okay next question what is the last book that you read so i just finished i can't remember the title of it it was um it was a book about modern india so it was like a super fast internet nation or something like this so it's about kind of uh like emerging middle class in india and how that country is kind of scaling up and you know all of the kind of interesting like interesting stuff that's happening weird political stuff that's bubbling under the surface some of the tensions with china some of the kind of nationalistic you know religious tensions that that exist there uh, i wanted to learn more about countries in this part of the world before i came out here so i bought that book on on india and i've got another one on uh, on korea to read so it was um it was super interesting to read that and um to get a bit more of a, you know, I think India is an incredible market, incredible opportunity, some great teams and, and, and companies coming out of there. So I wanted to kind of get, get under yeah, the yeah. skin of, um, yeah, of that country. Yeah, that's certainly one of the reasons why I was so excited to come to Asia to start doing business is because I never really knew anything about Asia or what, how things work out here. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's that intellectual curiosity. It's yeah, like, yeah. you know, you have to learn a bunch of stuff about like how does business operate? Like when we mm. did the... Lingvist did their A round with Rakuten and we started having board meetings in Japan. Like I read as much shit as I could about Japan because it's like the culture is yeah, so different and so unusual and so at odds with how we do things probably in, in, yeah. in Europe or the US. So like that's, that is one of the joys of coming here that like you kind of go, holy shit, like I can go to Indonesia. There's like fucking 250 million people there. Yeah. You know, it's almost the size of, of, of the US. You know, all of these incredible countries and opportunities that sometimes get, get overlooked. So yeah, that was a good book. I recommend it. Oh, thanks a lot. So what would you say is your most recommended book, however? I mean, I, I really liked, um, and it's probably the cliche, but like I quite like the hard thing about hard things that Ben Horowitz wrote. <laughs> yeah, that is becoming a little cliche on this show. <laughs> and with, with good reason, like I've, I've yeah. thoroughly, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed that. And yeah, I mean, I, from a non-business book point of view, there was a brilliant one a while ago called um, Another Mind, which is about uh, consciousness in octopi. It's just really interesting. It was like, like I'm interested, like from an AI perspective, I think everyone is interested in kind of consciousness in, in different ways. But this was just like uh, how cephalopods have evolved a very different type of brain and neural network and all this kind of stuff. So it was just, it was fascinating to read something that was like unimaginably interesting yeah. and had nothing to do with like improving CPA rates or fucking 
like scaling rapidly or whatever. It was just like genuinely interesting. Although now as a result, I can't eat octopus anymore because I feel guilty about it. So it was, as a downside, it's a pretty big one because octopus is very tasty. Mm, not sure I entirely agree. I find it a little bit cheery. But on to your other favorite question. What is your favorite website? Right now, I, I mean, and it's, it's probably a bit like Google. Like I think Reddit is incredible. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a cesspit of fucking horribleness at times. But I, I think if you find the right subreddits and the right people, you know, the mm-hmm. ability to surface really interesting information on there is yeah. amazing. Like it's, I mean, you know, I've done everything on Reddit. Like we've found users, we've used Reddit ads, have been pretty successful for some businesses, you know, found insights, found subreddits talking about products that I'd built or products that friends of mine have built. So I think it's pretty useful. The other one is... Um, there's a website called, uh, you know, for news and, and information and stuff like this. Stratechery is great for the information.com is, is, is brilliant. There's a website called Quib, which is like a really s- small group of people in the tech industry who share interesting links. And so they typically have really good stuff. But yeah, I, I suspect at the moment, like Reddit is, is probably the site that I visit most often. I mean, because it's kind of got everything from leaked information about the new Star Wars movie to actually some fairly interesting conversations about different cities around the world or, yeah. you know, technologies and stuff like that. So it caters to, ticks all the boxes for me. Okay. Well, that is basically all we have time for. So just quickly, how can people get in touch with you? If you go to twitter.com forward slash Eamon Carey, E-A-M-O-N-N-C-A-R-E-Y, I'm pretty pretty active on there. Or using, funnily enough, the same name on LinkedIn. You can uh, you can find me pretty easily and uh, we all say interesting shit every so often there. Well, thanks so much for all the advice. It's been a pleasure having you on. Anytime. Cool, man. Thank you. Oh, man. What a great interview. Such a nice guy as well. And Irish. I mean, he's got everything going for him. But yeah, before this turns into the Eamon Fanboy podcast, I uh, should just summarise that he just has a really good talent for getting the best out of people and just quickly seeing problems that will bring businesses down. And as always, I like to review my main lessons from the episode. I tried to keep them to three lessons an episode, but today I have four. And to be honest, I'm kind of cheating and I put two of them together. So actually, it's really five. But hey, I couldn't help myself and I'm excited. So anyway, number one. You really only have one life on this planet, so make it count. If you aren't super passionate about what you're doing at work, just try to minimize the time at work or start your own business where you're doing something that you actually like working on and just try and find your passion and work for your own goals. And as part of that, just don't work with dickheads because you should enjoy your time at work. So the team that you work with should be nice people that don't suck and get on and people that you just want to hang out with so this also links into his uh, interviewing tips which are if you're interviewing for hiring someone try and talk about some mundane stuff to see if they're actually like cool people that you wouldn't actually mind having around the office with you and then if you're interviewing a team for an accelerator or as a group of contractors to work with or something see if the team get on together or if there's any weird dynamic with one of them controlling the others or one of them not liking the thing so look at the micro gestures and yeah, just try and find people that aren't dickheads. Okay, so maybe that was three pieces of advice in one, but uh, moving on to number two. <laughs> Scheduling. Keep control of your time in specific slots so that you know when you'll be able to do different things and ensure that you have time saved for doing personal stuff. So whether you're working on a specific business task or spending time with your family, it's good to just have things separated into buckets, as Eamon calls them. This way, things won't get interrupted by calls, and especially when you're an investor and you have like 
many different companies that you're part of and you're working in accelerators with millions of people that all want to talk to you, it's just a good way to keep yourself sane and productive. Embrace the growth mindset. His favorite CEOs have a massive growth mindset attitude to everything. They're constantly learning and improving their skills in the best way. They're like sponges that constantly learn from everyone they meet and every action that they take, whether it has a good or bad consequence, it's just a chance to constantly improve themselves and their business. Additionally, they're also normal people who are fun to hang out with just because they have so many interests and they really try to learn everything. So just go all in on the growth mindset. And finally, advice. This is a really tricky one and there's no overwhelming, easy to implement strategy on how to take advice. You just will always get some good advice and some bad advice and working out which is the best for you at what time is something that kind of comes with experience. The only thing that we can really conclude is that you shouldn't let advice paralyze you when you have different advice coming at you and you just don't want to end up being indecisive because of it. And if you are ever unsure of what to do, just try to go with your gut and ignore everyone else. Um, I think the story of the business that received mainly negative feedback installed on their idea to then lose out on their business to others is not a unique story at all. So you should really have faith in your vision. And if people don't understand what you're doing, often you just need to explain your vision better rather than give up or sometimes just ignore people. Of course, advice is often really useful and just ignoring people is also kind of stupid a lot of the time. So a good rule of thumb is to not listen too closely to people that don't understand the industry you're in. And in that case, try to rely more on input from potential customers. Moving on now to books. His first recommendation is a book called Modern India, Superfast Internet Nation, which is, I think, a good read if you want to find out more about India as an emerging emerging economy. Uh, He hadn't actually finished it, but he seemed to be enjoying it at the time, and I haven't read it, but I'm sure it's great. Um, The second book he recommends is The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz, which is just a fantastic read for anyone who's going into entrepreneurship and expects life to just be easy, because it really isn't. And it will uh, (laughs) remind you that there's a lot of hard things to get through and about, yeah, there's a lot of grit needed and you should really read it before you just start things or quit your job that's for sure and lastly he recommends another mind which is all about consciousness in octopi which just sounds deeply fascinating to think about a completely different way of thinking and perceiving the world Um, so again i haven't read it but i'm actually quite interested too as i'm reading a different book on consciousness right now you've listened to an episode of the growth mindset podcast If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on your preferred app and give me a good rating. I would add, it's been proven that people that give good feedback demonstrate higher IQ and generally just have this irresistible gravity around them that just makes everybody want to be their friends. If you are unable to give good feedback right now, try sharing the show with a friend who will, or just wait for the show to improve. If you have any ideas for the show or you just want to reach out, I'd love to talk to you on Twitter. I am at Sam Harris Tweets or Instagram Sam Jam Snaps. You can find the show notes on Medium if you search for the Growth Mindset Podcast. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you enjoy your next podcast. Outtakes, outtakes. So you may want to be starting a podcast, but before you do, you might want to know that 
most podcast guests' answers actually start something a bit more like this. Yeah, it's literally... well. So, for... so if you want to be an indie podcaster, you may have a lot of editing to do. But on the plus side, when you wake up in the morning and try doing some recording, you might accidentally sound like Shaggy. Hey players, welcome back to the show. Just in case any of you didn't notice that, because I thought that sounded awesome. Anyway, you can go this time. Yeah, it's literally the well so Yeah, it's literally the well so Oh crap, I think he's coming back. I suppose I'd probably have to beat you beat you to death. Whoa. Easy tiger. Uh sounds like a dash.